everybody. Welcome to the next episode of my podcast, Women's Healthcare with Dr. Bruce Pierce. This is Dr. Bruce Pierce. And this episode, uh, we're going to focus on women's cancer screening. Uh, today, my special guest is a board-certified gynecologic oncologist and obstetrician gynecologist. And he's the medical director of the cancer programs here at Penn Medicine Princeton Health Hospital. Everybody, please welcome Dr. Noah Goldman. Hi, how are you? Hi, Dr. Here? Goldman. Can I call you Noah for Absolutely. the podcast? Just keep it informal. We're, you know, we're just two dudes having lunch and talking about women's health care. How's that sound? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Perfect. All right. So uh, we're go- going to focus on women's cancer, um, which you're an expert at, correct? Correct. And, <laughs> and we're going to mainly focus around like different types and... And mainly talk about screening uh, for our uh, population out there who's interested in, you know, when should you get screened, who should get screened, and why, et cetera, et cetera. Sound, sound reasonable? Sounds good. I thought so. All right. So uh, let's, I guess, let's start with the one that most people are aware of, which is uh, cancer of the cervix, uh, since um, we have a very good screening tool for many years called the pap smear. And uh, so let's start with that, and we'll work our way through others. Does that sound fair? Sounds so fair. So this is in no particular order. This is well, actually, it's my particular order. <laughs> so so humor me. So uh, Dr. Goldman, tell me, Noah, tell me, uh, what are the risk factors for cervical cancer? So there's really only one true risk factor, and that's exposure to the human papilloma virus, which is a sexually transmitted virus. Um, it there are uh, about 200 subtypes of the virus, but only about 30 are what we call oncologic or cancer-causing subtypes. The two most common are HPV 16 and 18, uh, and uh, we test for those using uh, liquid-based testing. And once uh, someone is diagnosed with having that virus, they may proceed to additional testing with colposcopy. So... All right, so this is interesting for the population to know because I think this is a little bit misunderstood, is that you're saying the vast, vast, vast majority of cervical cancer is from a virus. That's correct. From a sexually transmitted virus. Correct. It's it's from a virus, uh, but really the the exposure to the virus is not the one and only thing that causes cervical cancer. So approximately 80% of men and women are exposed to the virus uh, in their potentially in their lifetime, but really only about 7% of women will show up with abnormal pap smears or uh, issues pertaining to this virus. So it has it is the inciting event, but it is not the end all be all to uh, to going ahead and having cervix cancer. Uh, thanks. So all right, let's talk about screening as we uh, as we mentioned so so the pap smear is the i guess the gold standard for screening is that correct well that is correct but new guidelines have actually come out talking about hpv being sort of the new gold standard of of screening tests um, and using hpv as the first step along with pap smear as sort of a secondary test and flip-flopping the way we used to do that that requires a special machine that not every hospital has. And so uh, most places will continue to do pap smear first with HPV as a secondary test until we can get the technology built up within the system. 
getting back more basic, what what is a Pap smear? What it what and what and what is and what is HPV screen? So a Pap smear is basically taking a brush or a spatula and scraping, for lack of a better word, some of the cells off of the cervix. It's fairly painless, other than having the exam. Um, and the uh, pap smear is the, the brush is placed into a liquid medium, which allows uh, cytologists and pathologists to look at the cells and determine if they're normal or if they have any features that might be concerning and need further evaluation. Within that liquid, you can also do HPV testing, looking for the virus that may have integrated itself into the cells that that you've scraped off. Now, when should a woman with a cervix start getting screened uh, for cervical cancer? So the current guidelines are for 25 to start getting screened. uh, And that's, again, using liquid-based testing. The older guidelines where you're using PAP testing first and and, uh, HPV second, uh, starting at 21. So if a, let's say a cervix owner <laughs> is uh, younger than 25 or 21, but is sexually active, they, they do not need a pap smear or cervical cancer screening? They do not. How come? Well, the, what they found through a variety of studies, particularly in college-age women, is that these HPV infections are transient and that the uh, immune system takes care of these infections all on their own and most of the time just go away. It's also a very long process. So even if you diagnosed someone who was 18, for instance, with uh, an HPV test, uh, if you tested them six months later, it may be gone. But even if she had persistent uh, HPV infection, it may take 7, 10, 15 years for anything really bad to occur. And so by that time, they will have entered the screening process and, and can be followed or taken care of. By, by the way, this is a, a, uh, a discussion I have with all of my parents of teenage girls. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, they all want them tested. Because but... in their day, they, the, the minute they did anything right. uh, sexually, they were at the gynecologist's office. Right, and, and the truth is that, you know, it's one of those issues where... Um, the more you, the more you do, the more you find out. The more you have to do, and you know the 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 testing, which I'm sure we'll get into for colposcopy, is not exactly the most fun thing. And if it's not necessary because these infections are transient, why put somebody through that? And I think that's where we've sort of grown to. Right. And uh, now that's we're not saying that uh, um, women or cervix owners sh- shouldn't go to the doctor. We just we're just talking about the pap smear. Because, Correct. Cuz a lot of people uh you know equate the two together that if you go to the gynecologist you're getting a pap smear and that's the only reason you're going and that's whatever they're doing. But it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> there there's other things that need to happen. There's you know a more thorough exam obviously and I have this conversation all the time. Sometimes even post um hysterectomy when there's no more cervix and you don't need a pap smear anymore. I always tell patients, your gynecologist has been doing it for so many years, it may be very hard for them not to. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it works on the flip side as well. It's, it, it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum, but it, no, you, you need to go 
and see your doctor regardless. Yeah. The pap smear and the visit to the GYN are mutually exclusive events. <laughs> Good, because we do other things besides yeah. the pap smear. <laughs> we discuss contraception and breast health and all, all these other nice things. Exactly. And, yeah, absolutely. So, disclaimer there. I, too, may be guilty of being addicted to the pap smear myself. I mean, not getting one, but getting it. <laughs> uh, so I will, uh, I will admit to that. All right, so, okay, let's, you could start uh, 21 for PAPs or 25 for uh, liquid base with HP or with PAP screening, right? So right. how about after that? Let's say you're 25, you come in, you get your PAP screening. Uh, how often after that should you get screened? So if the, if the HPV test is negative, that's predictive that nothing bad is going to happen for the next three to five years around 99.7% of the time. So as long as that HPV test is negative, you don't need to return. The new guidelines, again, say five years for a new pap smear. Most people um, don't like waiting for five years. That's a long time to wait and, and use the sort of middle of the road guideline, which is three years. Yeah, as a, as a GY myself, wait a minute, five, even me, even I and my colleagues that I speak to get a little uncomfortable. Yeah, and, uh, and, and it, it, a lot of it has to do, again, you know, you, you start to look at the data. They, they do all sorts of crazy math algorithms. Um, the truth of the matter is when you look at the, the graphs from zero to three years, there's almost zero incidence of cervix cancer from three to five years it jumps slightly um and so you know over time as they've you know looked at all sorts of modeling it they realize that it can go out to five years even i as an oncologist am very uncomfortable with five years Uh, and most of those guidelines (laughs) have been written by um, a combination of gynecologists and gyn oncologists uh, the two presidents of the society that wrote these guidelines were both GYN oncologists when the guidelines were written. But even I can't really push myself to do to recommend five years. I usually recommend every three years. Yeah, to me, I'm thinking like, what if what if it was a false negative and and you waited five years? <laughs> so that that's what, yeah. the part that worries me the most. In in truth. Probably nothing would happen, but I think you know. I think three years is 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 a a length of time that not only the physician but I think patients they're they get worried about this stuff. It's it's right. it's out on social media. It's out on the internet, and waiting five years is is really quite a long time. So yeah, yeah. So um, the, thanks for a li- oh my question is what's all right. I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. Well, what's the harm in getting the pap smear of a year? Like, what harm could it do? So, yeah, again, it gets back to that the more you find, the more you have to do. So a lot of these uh, abnormal pap tests are transient. And so it takes anywhere between 18 and 24 months for things to resolve. So if you do have, if you catch it at a period of time, where it's either in the resolution phase or it's just brand new, now you have to go through a variety of steps that you probably didn't need to go through. And and again, nothing's really going to happen in that year. It's it would be extremely rare and unusual for anything to happen within a year. Um, and so because this is so indolent, so waiting those three years probably not an issue. All right. So let's talk about the HPV again, uh, as this seems to be. 
the, the main uh, issue with cervical cancer. So there's a vaccine for HPV. What are your thoughts on that? I think everybody should get vaccinated. Men, women. Oh my! Oh my half the population now just hit the. I, 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 I know. But so the the HPV vaccine is uh, the there's there's two. Um, the one that's the most popular is something called Gardasil, and it is um, it, it has uh, vaccination against the nine most common uh, HPV species that can potentially cause cancer. Uh, again, 16 and 18 are the big ones, but there's there's a variety of others. Um, and so by vaccinating yourself against HPV, you decrease your likelihood of getting cervix cancer by over 70%. And um, no one wants to get cervix cancer. So the vaccine is is safe. Uh, the worst case scenario that I've seen is people can get a little welt where their vaccination site is. But other than that, uh, the vaccine is, is completely safe. It's recommended. Um, to, it can be given anywhere from age nine to age 45. Um, most pediatricians will give it at the 12 to 13 year old um, visit. And um, it's given in three doses at, at the initial visit, and then a month later, and then six months later. Right. So this is—I assume this is just given to women, right? Girls, right? Because you know it's for cervix cancer. So, so it's interesting. <laughs> I'm being facetious. I know the I, I answer, know. but I'm, le- I'm, I'm, le- I'm leading. <laughs> I get it. Uh, so you know, it is as I said, it's a sexually transmitted disease. So it does take into account men. Um, and there is, it is recommended that uh, males be vaccinated as well, not only for transmission decrease uh, from, male, uh, from men to women, but also from men to men. And it re- does reduce the, um, the risk of anal rectal cancers as well, which can be HPV-related, not to the same degree as cervix, but can be HPV-related. Right. So there's health issues for men, too, the hpv uh, is not for women only. Correct. <laughs> it is not a uh, sexually uh, sex-specific disease. Right. So you heard it here. Two male providers are saying that boys should be vaccinated as well as the girls. Absolutely. All and, right. and all of my sons have been vaccinated. So. Uh, mine too. A- absolutely. All right. So um, let's talk. Uh, let's, uh, I guess, talked enough about the cervix. I think we got the, Oh, no, we have not. We talked about when to start and how often, but when do you stop? When do you stop doing cervical cancer screening? So this is a little, this is, there, there are guidelines, but the, the guidelines don't take into account, I guess, the, the new age of, of relationships. So um, anyone who's had a hysterectomy, they as long as that uh, hysterectomy was not for something with the cervix, a precancer, cancerous lesion, they do not need to get pap tests anymore um, because the likelihood that there will be anything there is extremely infinitesimally small. And, and again, any infection that may inf- uh, affect the vagina will be transient at best. For women who, who still have a cervix, uh, the, the guideline is for age 65, um, but 
in my opinion, it doesn't take into account women who have had new relationships, new partners, women who, who are widowed and, and now go on to have a new relationship. I don't think that's been studied as intently um, as some of the other um, age groups. And I, I think it'd be interesting to look at that age group and see if there is any, uh, any increase in HPV transmissibility or infection. Yeah, there is, there is a, a pill out there called Viagra or Cialis <laughs> that uh, is, uh, I think, maybe extending the sexual activity uh, length of, uh, I guess, age. Absolutely. So, I think the, the sexual landscape has certainly changed. The, the, the you know, uh, in, in previous decades, you know, women and men who uh, had their spouse die you know, and they were older than 60, 65, frequently did not re-engage in sexual encounters. But now people are continuing to have sex well into their 70s, 80s, 90s. God bless them. God bless them. (laughs) Exactly. So I want to clarify one thing. So uh, you mentioned the hysterectomy, but some women have hysterectomy, but their cervix is left in. Uh, we, well, we call it a subtotal hysterectomy. Some people call it a partial hysterectomy. So uh, if what about those women who have had it, the partial or the subtotal hysterectomy but still have their cervix? Yeah, those women absolutely still need to have pap smears right. because their cervix is still there. So in other words, if you still have a cervix, uh, still get tested until maybe 65, maybe. push it out a little bit depending on maybe I would, uh, yeah, history. I think, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I said I would I would take a fairly thorough history and see, you know, where they are in terms of relationships and then, and then you know, make sort of a patient joint decision. Sounds good to me. All right, now we'll move on. Uh, let's talk about ovarian cancer. Um, what are the risk factors for ovarian cancer? So... Ovarian cancer is a, a little bit of a, a, an enigma. Uh, you know, there's there's not a lot of uh, side effects that you can tell openly. In terms of risk factors, the general thinking is anything that causes um, ovulate, anything where a woman is ovulating all the time. So if you started getting your periods early. Um, and you went into menopause late, those are risk potential risk factors. Um, if you um, uh, don't have any pregnancies, that's another risk factor. Pregnancy inhibits ovulation and so uh, um, is actually protective against ovarian cancer, just like birth control pills are protective against ovarian cancer um, because they reduce ovulation. Um, there has been some new data looking at where ovarian cancer originates from. And most people believe now that it originates from where the tube and the ovary have sort of joined together. Um, and so some of those risk factors may not be, you know, uh, written in stone, shall R- we say. Right. So uh, what are typical symptoms? This is the tough part. Yeah, so th- that's always the tough part. This is actually a big... Um, a big sort of push of mine. I, I think, you know, the, the, the symptoms are very nebulous. Uh, the, the story I always tell is a woman who comes to see me who has ovary cancer. Um, you know, the, her, her story begins with she had an upset stomach. She had some 
heartburn. She went to see her primary doctor. They gave her the little purple pill. Um, that didn't work. They sent her to the gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist does their workup. And finally, there's a CT scan. And from the time that they started presenting with symptoms to the time that they show up is, you know, three or four months down the road and they have metastatic ovary cancer. Not that they didn't have before, but that 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 is their diagnosis. And so the symptoms that we found are all very general and nebulous. There's heartburn, there's abdominal pain, there's bloating, um, there's change in urinary or bowel habits, but those are all things that any of us can have on any given day. And so what I like to tell people is, it's persistence of those symptoms. So, you know, it, you know, I wake up like anybody else and, you know, my stomach hurts a little bit and, you know, it goes away in six hours, eight hours, 24 hours. But if it was there for, you know, five days, seven days, 10 days, that's when, you know, you would start to get maybe a little concerned and see your physician. Um, the other thing is that when you see your physician, you know, they may not have in the back of their mind that this is one of the things it could be. And so um, you really need to, to, to advocate for yourself and say, all right, well, we're going to try something. But if it's not, maybe we should be thinking about, you know, a list of other things. And ovary cancer is in that list. Yeah, that's always the, the scary part. And, and the tough part is the delay in the diagnosis. Because like you said, these symptoms are so vague and doctors or providers hear them every day. Uh, you know, their intent is not up, but if, I guess if you ever have, you're saying if you have a persistence, uh, more than the norm, maybe don't stop with, oh, it's, uh, it's just, uh, uh, reflux and take a pill. Right. Uh, maybe say, Hey, how about an ultrasound? Right. You know, let's start there because it's cheaper than a cat scan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's easy. And again, those symptoms occur when the ovary cancer is already spread. So most ovary cancer is diagnosed in the later stages, stage three or stage four. It's only about 20 to 25 percent of ovary cancers are diagnosed in stage one. So um, the the symptoms are because it has spread, but at least you are not sitting there waiting for it to spread more. Right, right. So that's that's still scary, though. Yes. (laughs) So uh, interesting, because I never thought about if you're having symptoms, it's it's not <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. The cat's so out of the bag, so to speak. That's, so, is there anything you could do to pick it up early? Because this is what the patients ask. So, well, actually, a lot of patients are under the impression that the Pap smear is screening for ovarian mm-hmm. cancer. What, what do you say to that? Well, it, it's not. It's not. It, they're, they're, they are mutually exclusive organs. Um, you know, there's really nothing for screening for ovarian cancer. They've looked at a variety of ways to screen. They've looked at doing yearly ultrasounds. Um, and it turns out uh, in one study that for every, um, so they, they, would, they would pick up on women who had cysts or masses on their ovaries and they would take them to surgery. And it took 51 surgeries to find one ovary cancer. So 50 women right. underwent surgery when it was for a benign cause. So the, and even in women who have a genetic predisposition, it was that that went down a bit, but it was still 12 to 1. So 11 women were still getting surgery when they didn't necessarily need to have surgery. And surgery could have complications. Absolutely. And you could have, uh, you know. Right. And then the other 
thing that people always come to me about is yeah. the CA125 yeah, test. To, I was about the, to say yeah. that. So the, the CA125 test, unfortunately, is really good test if you have cancer to follow your progress and make sure that you're being treated. But it is not a predictor of cancer. In fact, if you took 100 women with elevated CA125 tests and took them to surgery with an ovarian mass, only four of them would have a, uh, an actual ovarian cancer. So it is not a predictor of cancer. Um, it is, it's a good thing for women. If it's drawn, it can funnel you to the right person, um, namely the GYN oncologist. Right. But the majority of the time, it's benign because all it measures is what's going on inside the lining of the abdomen. And so anything that irritates the lining of the abdomen, if you get your CA125 drawn while you're having your period, you can actually have an elevated CA125. If you get fibroids, you can have an elevated CA125. If you have heart disease, very frequently I get called for women who have congestive heart failure. They're in the hospital. They do their you know global CT scans and they find a little cyst on the ovary and they draw a CA125 and the CA125 is like 2000. Yeah. And I'm like, well, let's wait and see what happens when her congestive heart failure is under control. And more times than not, it's redrawn and it goes back to normal because it's the irritation of the lining of the heart that causes the elevation of the CA125. Yeah, so a lot of false positives. And of course, if it's false positive, you think you, you think you're have cancer. Right. And, it, <laughs> you know, we obviously we investigate every one, um, but you're, you're investigating a lot more than you're finding. Right. And sometimes, though, to investigate, you have to do surgery, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So you could conceivably, if you get this CA125 during your period, let's say, and it's elevated, you're getting surgery because you have because you had your period. Right. When, well, when you, you, you might. You certainly, um, a lot of times, depending on the history and what the story is, um, you know, I'll redraw it and see right and and a lot see of times you see if it goes back down to normal or is going down i always tell patients bad things don't get better right? <laughs> exactly. so if you're if you're if it's trending up then obviously you're you know you've bought yourself some sort of further investigation whether that's more scans more scans and surgery um, but if it's going down it's something that we can watch and i feel comfortable about so the reason we you and i both get a lot of questions about CA125 is there's a lot of um, information on social media by celebrities who tell uh, tell the people, don't even listen to your doctor. <laughs> Just get, insist on the CA125 right. because my so-and-so relative uh, got ovarian cancer and if they would have just checked the CA125 when she was 18, they would have picked it up. About 50 to 70% of early ovary cancers are CA125 negative because right. they're confined to the ovary and they're not um, irritating the lining of the abdomen in any way, shape, or form. And so they end up being normal. So a lot of women who have early ovary cancer actually have normal CA125. Aha. Uh -huh. But again, these are just anecdotal uh Right, you know, and, and uh, you know. we, we like to say, you know, they're N of one, right? <laughs> right. They're, they're one story, and, you know, when you look on the Internet, I always say the Internet and best friends are my two favorite things in the entire <laughs> world. But uh, They have the most influence. Right, but, uh, you know, they, they the, the, everybody has a, a – a there's always someone with a story of something bad. Um, I find it very rare that from a medical standpoint, anybody posts – 
good news on social media when it comes to medical stuff. It's always something bad that happens. So. <laughs> quick, quick digress. Uh, during family dinners, uh, my, my wife's grandfather is now deceased. Used to always, every time we were together, we'd say, did you hear about the doctor who did this bad and this bad? And I said, I always say to him, did you hear about the doctor who saved the person's life? It happens every day. <laughs> so, so, but it was a joking conversation, but he always wanted to point out the bad that yes, he heard. Everybody hears, but it's the same thing. You know, I, I, I'm on, to completely digress, I, I'm on a, 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 a car forum and everybody's always complaining. Everybody who posts always has something bad to say about their car right and, and so finally i actually had a, a good experience and so you know what everybody posts something bad i'm actually posting something good <laughs> on my car <laughs> today and, and they were all like oh wow oh, you know, thank you for doing that that's so nice of you <laughs> some good news yeah they do exist so exactly that sounds great all right so let's move moving on all right so oh, what about okay we're still on ovarian cancer so let's talk about BRCA testing what's BRCA testing so the, the BRCA gene is uh, a, a gene that um, works uh, to suppress uh, it's a, it works to suppress tumor cell proliferation. All tumors really are are cells that are growing out of control. Every cell has its own life cycle and is supposed to die. The BRCA gene helps to allow that cell to go through its natural natural life cycle. If the BRCA gene is injured in some way, um, then it can't do that. And it, it opens up the potential for the cell to continue to grow out of control and become a cancer. Um, and so women, there are certain groups of women, either with family history of cancer, uh, certain ethnic groups, although those groups have have been um, expanded. Ashkenazi Jews are the big ethnic group that people talk about um, can get tested for uh, the BRCA gene because um, if they are genetically predisposed to either breast or ovary cancer, then there's either screening or treatments that we can do to reduce that risk. Great. So who should get the bracket test? Well, you shouldn't just go out and get it, um, but should, but you, you, should you tell your doctor you insist? <laughs> well, you know, if you're willing to pay for it, um, and I think that's the limiting factor right. is the cost, and, and it, it, is insurance going to pay? for it's it? It's not inexpensive, and insurance will pay for it in a lot of cases, but you have to meet certain criteria. So anyone who has a person, anybody who has a history of ovarian cancer in their family, can automatically uh, get tested. Anyone who has multiple family members with breast cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, but basically we as physicians need to take a good family history, find out what any predisposition may exist. If it's obvious, we can send it. Um, if it's not obvious, then we have genetic counseling that can talk to the patient and do a whole family tree and figure out not only um, whether or not they qualify for testing, but what specific tests should they be getting based on the patient's history? Yeah, and I think the good news is uh, the cost is coming down. I remember when it first came out, I mean, it was many, many thousands of dollars. Yeah, it and was $3,000 to get the full panel. Right. And then if you just wanted to get what we call the founder genes, which were the three genes, three gene mutations that we knew um, from you know thousands of patients that were the most common, 
uh, that was cheaper, it was like 500 bucks, but still it's 500 bucks, but you may have a variant that's not in those three. Right. Um, and as we've done more and more testing, we're finding more and more um, gene mutations that are, um, that can cause cancer. And so um, people are, you know, people back then were missing out. In fact, people who were being tested uh, way back in the day in the earlier part of the century have been retested because they may have only gotten the three gene panel and they need right. to get more. And I guess the, the, the benefit of testing is if it's positive, your chance of getting either breast or ovarian cancer becomes extremely high. Yeah. So for breast can for BRCA1 breast cancer, lifetime risk is 60 to 60% to 80% and ovary cancer is up to 40% risk. Ovary cancer in someone who doesn't have any gene mutations is just walking around the street is one and a half percent. So that's a significant increase. BRCA2 is a little less, but still very high. For ovary cancer, it's about 15 to 25 percent. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to, strangely, I put it kind of down the list uh, is uterine cancer. And I, we were both smiling because this is now the most common cause of uh, gynecologic cancer in women or uterus otis yeah absolutely uh you know uh uterine cancer is i think it's number five in women overall if i remember the right statistics in terms of um in terms of frequency of diagnosis and most of that is because of the obesity crisis in this in this country um um, most uterine cancers are what we call estrogen sensitive cancers, and they are um, what what happens is there's an overabundance of estrogen that affects the uterine lining. The uterine lining continues to grow and grow and grow, and then it becomes a cancer. And women have an enzyme in their system that converts the steroids that are made from fat tissue into estrogen. And so even when they're in menopause, heavier women have uh, a, a higher risk for, for uterine cancer because they have this overexposure of the uterus to estrogen. So actually, obesity, which is uh, a big issue in this country, um, United States, from our foreign listeners, um, is directly related to uterine cancer. Absolutely. It's, uh, it is the number one um, risk factor for getting uterine cancer. And... That is why now it's the number. The, the num- oh, I saw something recently uh, that was also now the number one uh, like cancer death co- or cause, for lack of a better term. So, like previously, ovarian cancer was no, was although it was only one and a half percent, it was caused the most most death. Correct. But now I saw. I don't know if it's maybe I saw it passing. I think I saw some article where. Now, uterine cancer deaths are surpassing. I think you're right. I haven't looked recently, but I think part of it is just sheer volume, right? We have right. so many more uh, uterine cancers than we do ovary cancers that even if there's a, even if the percentage is different, that the, we have such a high numerator that the percentage is, is or high denominator that the, the percentage is just much greater in terms of deaths. I'm going to tell you the, the least thing my patients are worried about when they come in is uterine cancer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's the most, it's the, they worry about breasts, which is not, you know, which, right. and cervix because they're getting the pap smear. Um, and ovaries because they're worried about ovarian and what they should right. do about that. But they're not, I mean, they're not even thinking about uterine cancer. Right. 
and 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 it's it's it, it most are diagnosed early and most are curable but you know you have to diagnose it early so that you can cure it and and so women don't recognize you know some of the the symptoms and really the biggest symptom is bleeding after menopause um and and some women will be like, will tell me oh well i just saw a couple of spots and i was like that's all you that's need all you, right. <laughs> you know the, there's no you know there's no quantification you, you you're bleeding after menopause you need to see your your obgyn but it's not just um menopausal women it can be younger women as well especially if they're overweight so overweight women who have abnormal bleeding, bleeding in between their periods, heavy periods, um, and they're over the age of 40, those women usually need biopsies as well. Because for, we're seeing a, a, a lot greater number of younger women getting uterine cancer all due to the obesity crisis. Absolutely. So how, okay, so if they're having these symptoms, they're bleeding after menopause, any bleeding, or if they're before menopause in their 40s, but the bleeding is irregular, abnormal, you know, prolonged, how, uh, what do you do when you go to the doctor? Or what, so, what do you, what do you, what do you expect the doctor to do? So the, they're going to do their regular exam and then they may offer to do something called an endometrial biopsy, which is a little thin tube that can be placed through the cervix and they can biopsy the lining of the uterus to find out if there's a cancer. It, um, saves people from needing to go to the OR and have what's called a DNC and go under anesthesia. They're, they're fairly accurate. If they're positive, they're accurate. Um, Negative is not always negative, but it's pretty close. Um, but uh, but the, they can do this biopsy in the office. It's not the most comfortable procedure in the world. It, it causes a lot of cramping. Um, but once the, procedure's, the, the, the procedure takes about 45 seconds, and once it's done, the cramping goes away. Um, but it saves you a trip to the operating room. So if you can deal with a, a minute and a half of, of really bad cramps, you, you don't have to go to the operating room. Right. And also some doctors are now doing, not DNCs, but uh, something called a hysteroscopy uh, in the office as well. Right. So you can actually look into the uterus after you give numbing medicine to the cervix. You can actually look into the uterus and see if there's a polyp or something that needs to be in there. Yeah, and sometimes it depends on the situation or the patient. Right. At the very least, you need a biopsy. Um, at the very most, if available, and it's not available everywhere, uh, they have this uh, hysteroscopy, which is a camera that can look in, into the uterine lining right. and take biopsy, you know, what we call directed biopsies, meaning what you can see. And because the the uh, endometrial or the uterine lining biopsy is kind of a blind procedure, we don't know. Right, and you can miss obviously if something's a polyp; it's it's very thin. It can it can miss, you know, certain areas. Uh, again, if you know it comes back as a precancerous or a, a cancerous. Uh, lesion, then, then you know you don't need anything further. But if it comes back as equivocal or they're not sure, you may need a second test. So what about? Uh, I guess uh, probably a doctor will do an ultrasound before or or at the same time or same visit as the biopsy. So what are they looking for on the ultrasound? For specifically for that, they're looking at the lining of the uterus uh, to look to see if it's thickened. So in a postmenopausal woman, if, if you haven't reached menopause yet, it's, it's difficult to tell because if you're still having your periods, you know, it can be thickened right before your period. It can be thin right after your period. But if you have reached menopause and you're not bleeding anymore, it's supposed to be thin. It's supposed to be less than four millimeters. So if it's 
if it's greater than if it's five millimeters or more, you know, that's an indication to have a biopsy and to have an investigation, even if you're not bleeding. What if it's three millimeters? Three millimeters bleeding. is good. They're three, good. They're yeah. good. Three millimeters in bleeding and menopause? Yes. Oh no, you still need a biopsy. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this is where you get into a little bit of a tug of war match. The sort of standard answer is everybody who's menopausal and bleeding needs a biopsy no matter what their ultrasound says. Right. Now, there are some women where you cannot do a biopsy for whatever reason, either medically or just physically, that you can't get it done in the office or in the operating room. In those very rare and specific cases, as long as the ultrasound says that it's less, it's four millimeters or less, then you're good to go. But the standard answer is anybody who's menopausal and has bleeding needs to come in and be evaluated with a biopsy. There you go. That's what I want to know. <laughs> I guess we'll touch very briefly because we don't see that often. I guess uh, there are some cancers of the vulva and vagina. So um, what are risk factors for that? Yeah, vaginal cancer is very rare. So, and we, we, we rarely see it. It's usually associated with cervix cancer in some way, shape, or form. And HPV. Right, right. Uh, vulvar cancer is a little different. Vulvar cancer can be H. There's really two types of vulvar cancer the, the HPV related type, um, and then there's sort of just the spontaneous type that's mostly in older patients. Um, usually, patients who have changes on their vulva they see a darkening of the vulva or they see a light like the skin gets lighter or darker um, or they have some sort of constant itching in a particular area they should mention it to their gynecologist they may or may not need to do a biopsy to determine if it's something benign or if there's or if there's a cancer there obviously if there's no big mass it's probably not uh, a cancer but it may be biopsy to determine if there's a way to treat it either with steroids or with uh, estrogen cream depending on what it is right and usually vulvar biopsy could be done in the office with local with local absolutely that that is a that is a you don't want to do it every day but you know it's not not the end of the world right i wouldn't sign up for it but if i needed it (laughs) exactly all right dr goldman let's so let's it's time to recap so this is, the, this is the part of the podcast where I uh, recap everything and you tell me how, how much I got it right and how much I got it wrong. So to recap, going over the most common uh, gynecologic cancers uh, out there, uh, cervix uh, risk factors is pretty much HPV um, and uh, the screening with the pap smear and with HPV screening. Um, Nowadays, you could start a little later because we know it takes time for this virus to resolve, and uh, especially in younger women. So they could either start at age 21 or 25, do every two years initially, then maybe three to five if you're doing HPV testing. Right. All right. So, uh, and uh, we highly, highly encourage HPV vaccine for both men and women uh, before uh, getting exposed to HPV, which is through sex. So technically, cervical cancer, you might say, is a sexually transmitted disease. Cervix cancer technically is a sexually transmitted uh, disease. Yeah, but you want to get the vaccine uh, to yeah, target ages 12 for boys and girls so they don't even have to worry about it. And maybe, you know, we'll, we're the last generation to, to see it, which is our hope. Well, we see very, I, I will say to interrupt your your, your recap, okay, but please but, do. But we do, we do see, uh, 
we have seen a significant drop off. I mean, anecdotally here in Princeton, I can tell you where I'm sure many people are vaccinated. Everybody is coming to see their doctor as opposed to where I was before in the inner city. Um, well, I, I, I don't see a lot of cervix cancer here. Right. Whereas up there in an unvaccinated, lower income, you know, less doctor driven population, there was a lot of metastatic cervix cancer, not even, you know, cancer that could be removed from surgery, but cancer that would be treated with chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And is it so, worldwide, like if you consider uh, third world countries who don't have the technology or the vaccines, uh, cervix cancer is still number one uh, cause of death? Yes, for women? yes. Yeah. There's 500,000. So there's about 13,000 new cases in the United States, probably less this year. Um, there's about 500,000 cases worldwide. Wow. So, so. Get, we, we're lucky, folks. Get that vaccine. Uh, don't be afraid of it. It's safe. Uh, it does not encourage promiscuity. It's been Studies been done on that. So if you're worried about that, uh, boys and girls, because it affects both. Uh, so okay. One, one thing I would yeah. also add, though, in, in terms of, of screening and, and in terms of risk factors is smoking. I, I, I didn't mention what? it, but, oh, let's but, mention but, it. But, let's but smoking is actually the only other independent risk factor for cervix cancer. Women who smoke are three times more likely to have persistent HPV infections and more likely to have a pre-invasive or invasive lesion than women who do not smoke. So if you needed more than the two million, two million other reasons to stop <laughs> smoking, this is two million and one. Exactly. Yeah. Stop, yeah. And it, it really, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing when I have had women who have smoked and I have treated them for even a precancerous lesion and told them to stop smoking, um, they've had much better responses than women who continue to smoke. Absolutely. Stop smoking. All right, so an ovarian cancer, uh, unfortunately, uh, symptoms are vague and um, and it's usually picked up uh, in a later stages because even you're even saying today that even when you're having the symptoms, it's because it's advanced. Right. Uh, uh, screen. Unfortunately, there's no really good screening test yet. Uh, you know, if there's l- l- any luck, it's like only one and a half percent of the population, so it's low. Uh, but if you do a persistent bloating or GI upset that's not going away, uh, it's not bad idea to get an ultrasound, uh, CAT scan, or Absolutely. whatever, uh, just to look. Uh, CA one twenty five uh, is really not a good screening test. It's been looked at. Uh, yes, there's anecdotal evidence of celebrities. Oh, if I didn't do that, I would have. But, uh, but still, it's uh, a lot of false positives. Uh, and like you said, you would have to have like 50 unnecessary surgery, major surgeries to pick up, you know, one cancer. Right. So, and I, I always tell patients, I, my big push when I talk about this is pay attention. You, no one knows their body better than the actual person. Right? Exactly. And so pay attention. If there's something that's abnormal, get it investigated. Yeah, it's a little bit of a pain to take a half day off from work and go see the doctor, but the consequences of not could be fairly severe. So I always say, listen to your body, pay attention. I find that women in general feel like they need to take care of their family, their work, their extended family and they forget about themselves their pets and, yeah <laughs> and, and pretty much everything else but but themselves and I, I i feel like they really 
it, it's my push to sort of tell people, remember to pay attention to yourself. That is great advice. And if there is like strong, either strong or not even any family history of ovarian cancer, consider maybe getting genetic uh, uh, testing, yep. bracket testing, uh, et cetera. Uh, and uh, uterine cancer, the most common GYN cancer in the United States, uh, mainly because of the obesity epidemic. Uh, so, so obesity is, again, in addition to other uh, health problems, uh, is directly related to uterine cancer, and um, that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, make sure everybody uh, eat healthy, stay, stay fit, don't smoke, um, get your vaccines, and that's my wrap-up. <laughs> it was a good wrap-up. All right. All right, Dr. Goldman, it was uh, great talking to you. Uh, you're welcome anytime. And uh, everybody, uh, stay tuned for the next episode of Women's Healthcare with Dr. Bruce Pierce.